Hello, Comic Book Club fans. At our new location on the Patreon Unlocked ed- Edition. Um, because last month uh, you were able to get our subscriptions over $2,500 a month, we are now providing you with an extra free episode a month uh, in the form of this Comic Book Club. Yes. And excited we all are for that. Um, so... In honor of doing this thing a little bit differently, I've also decided to do something a little bit differently. Um, because I've been reading a lot of uh, really interesting, good theory books. You know, it's, they're all very interesting. But sometimes you, know, you can only hear the same or similar critiques of neoliberalism so many times before you're like, yes, okay, good. We agree. Um, so I was deciding to take a hard left turn and do something entirely different. So today I'm actually talking about a work of fiction, which is unusual for Kami Book Club, which is to the stated, um, sort of well, unstated uh, mission of which I guess, is to try and take um, mostly newly published, but not always, more, mostly academic, but not always, bits of theory, and then translate what they mean for an audience that can actually take those ideas and sort of, you know, go run around in the field with them. And this, make no mistake, will have some theory in it. Um, I'm looking a lot at theories of fiction, theories of science fiction in particular, a little bit like Brecht creeps in, you know, a little bit of that. But I think this, if this, if this book club is anything, it's 30% theory and 70% Riley loves this book. And I'm just going to tell you some of the cool stuff that happens in it and a lot of the cool devices that are used in it. This is me. This is kind of like the Warhammer 40,000 uh, episodes for me where I've never done it on Trash Future. But every time I've guested now, I think on three other podcasts where I've talked in depth about Warhammer 40,000 and how cool it is. This is kind of like that for me. I'm just sharing something I like. Um, so without any further ado, let's start talking about Blindsight by Peter Watts. It was published in 2006. It was, I believe, the third of Watts' books and uh, is in the Firefall trilogy. So it's the same set of the of world, I guess. Um, and I'll explain sort of what that means later. Uh, and what's interesting about the publication history of the book is that Peter Watts is by training a marine biologist. Um, and he, spe- he specializes in dealing with the strangest, most bizarre alien creatures that actually exist in the world so it's sort of a natural fit that he would be writing a story that's ultimately at base a first contact story the other interesting thing is that the book when it was uh, published like i said the third in this trilogy was not promoted properly by the publisher that was not getting the attention it deserved and uh, ultimately watts just decided fuck it I'm going to just publish it for free on my own website. And after Watts th- did that, uh, Blindsight is now a huge cult hit in um, hard science fiction. It's considered like, like, there are some people who consider it like the gold standard for hard science fiction in the 21st century. Uh, it is a brutal and 
uncompromisingly cynical, I think, look at the future, humanity, technology, and so on. But it's very fun, and it sort of gets Lovecraftian in its ability to con- construct eldritch horrors that are rooted, unfortunately, in actual scientific papers. So just before, because I'm going to start with a, a little bit of the theory and then get into some of the uh, themes, and I'm going to try to really balance not doing spoilers here, or not too many, because I, more than anything else, really, really want you to read this book. Um, but let's start with the blurb. Um, and I've added to it for clarity. Two months have passed since a myriad of alien objects clenched around the Earth, screaming as they burned. The heavens have been silent since until a derelict space probe hears whispers from a distant comet. Something talks out there, but not to us. Who should we send to meet the alien when the alien doesn't want to meet? Send a linguist with her brain carved up into five distinct personality cores and a biologist so spliced with machinery that he can't feel his own flesh. Send a pacifist warrior and a vampire recalled from the grave by the voodoo of paleogenetics. Send a man with half his mind gone since childhood to translate the bleeding edge and make it comprehensible to baseline humans. Send them to the edge of the solar system, praying you can trust such freaks and monsters with the fate of the world. You fear they may be more alien than the thing you've sent them to find, but that you'd give anything for that to be true if you knew what was waiting for them. So this is the blurb to what is, in my opinion, the best hard science fiction book ever written. And it's so excellent because it evokes this Lovecraftian horror without ever venturing too far outside of the realm of the plausible, or at least the theorized. So... I've got it, like I said, I've got an episode plan here that does the theory for a bit, but also, like I said, a lot of this is just me talking about the cool things of a book that I find very cool. Um, there will be some minor spoilers, but I'm going to make an effort to leave the meat of the story to you, because like I said, I insist everyone reads this book. So, if we want to categorize this uh, further as a subgenre of science fiction, it's a first contact story, sort of. Because by the end of the book, you'll wonder if first contact has even been made or if the concept of first contact is really even that meaningful because the idea of contact between two beings may be one that is still so fundamentally human that a genuinely alien alien thing, you don't even call it a life form, you don't really know if it's alive, would just the concept of contact just doesn't fit with it. And like I said, this is because Peter Watts is, by training and trade, a marine biologist. He is concerned to challenge every science fiction trope that brings about vaguely gray characters with slightly bigger heads and slightly longer arms, walking around on two feet, and sharing things that are common to Earth, such as sensing the world around them through light and chemicals and sound waves, or sight and smell and hearing, or even engaging in conscious, purposeful thought. So what Watts is trying to do is posit a form of alien life so alien to us that we would not really even recognize it as life. Um, And this is not going to be a spoiler-free review because Blindsight is a book that does not really follow a traditional plot line. The quest is sort of very poorly defined. There's no big bad, really. There's just a big other, not in the theoretical sense. Uh, And there's not even an identifiable hero. The protagonist just sort of observes what's going on around him, unable to affect it at all. And as the book goes on, you sort of get the sense that none of the characters are able to affect any of what's going on around them. They're just trying to maintain a semblance of control. And in that sense, Blindsight is less like a sort of ABC story and more like a gigantic, horrifying device that just plays out over time while you just watch. It's a bit like a sadistic Rube Goldberg machine 
which means it's actually quite a bit like H.P. Lovecraft in this way. So I'm going to focus on the first section of the book because what I really, really, really want you to do is for all you to have read it. Released it for free online. I'll link the, the free copy in the description of this episode. But first, before we get into uh, the book itself, uh, let's talk a little bit about science fiction in general. So as any regular listener to this podcast will know, I love and have always loved science fiction. And a lot of the stories that stay with me are usually of a particular type. Um, so some of my favorite science fiction stories or families of stories have been like Blindsight, this book, Dune and all of the books surrounding them, even the terrible prequels written by um, Frank Herbert's son, uh, Warhammer 40K, uh, the whole sort of universe of insane Baroque grimdark of Warhammer 40K, even though Warhammer 40K is sort of more fantasy than science fiction, which is a distinction I'll break down soon, or, uh, or like Roadside Picnic. Many of these stories also connect back to concepts that are, you know, kind of horrifying and sort of germane to H.P. Lovecraft, which is mankind dealing with forces, creatures, or things that are unknowable, but very eerie, and that don't, that don't themselves fit into easy paradigms of hero and villain, but rather that are these incredibly complex um, forces that are arrayed and then set off. Um, and that seek to describe the impossible as the everyday. So whether it's Paul Atreides' son, Leto II, using his prescience to set humanity on, uh, on a millions of years long golden path towards, you know, um, the evolutionary next step, or, or Red's friends melting into dust in the zone because some impossibly advanced aliens just forgot their equivalent of a spark plug during a stop to Earth, or whatever, I find these concepts very interesting. You might call it uh, science fiction as a terrifying conceptual mandala where a world created by the author is given an insane multiplicity of moving parts that are only sort of hinted to in the text of the book, but leaves room for a lot of imagination beyond the pages. And that, for me, is what makes science fiction more interesting than fantasy. So in fantasy, there are a set of delimited rules for how things proceed, and these rules are often just different from the rules that are, exist in our universe, quite often because they just are. Gandalf does magic and magic's a thing. Learn the new rules. Um, I think of a sort of, sort of reductive approach to world building where the author sort of creates the bounds of what is possible and then just sort of colors them in. And science fiction, I think, does not do this. And I know some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute. Dune is a book that has quite a few magic powers. And it's like, yeah, fine. But Warhammer 40,000 is basically just fantasy that happens to be in space. Um, but all... I think so. I think science fiction is sort of a matter of degree, um, where where we where we look at the extent to which the author attempts to hint at another world that is our own but transformed by one or more little changes, or where the author just does something entirely new. Um, and like I said, like Dune, you can say, well, in Dune, he theorizes a chemical called the spice that exists on a, on another planet that allows humans to be pressy and all of these things that look like magic are actually explained with a say with appealed with theoretical theoretical chemical you know so there is so that would be more of a soft sci-fi but again we'll get into this so the, but like i said this is not true of science fiction where rather than imagining entirely different worlds the author tends to imagine one new thing and then play out the consequences of that that's why something like warhammer 40,000 toes the line between science fiction and fantasy they've like invented new dimensions and gods and monsters and magic and space marines and all this. So I'm not anything approaching sort of 
experienced in sort of the academia of literature. This is just sort of what I know offhand. Um, so, you know, do do point out what I have missed because I'm sure I've missed quite a few things. I'm just remembering what I'm what I sort of know offhand. So it's impossible to discuss the theory of science fiction without first talking about Darko Suvin, a mid-century Yugoslavian literature academic. We can start from the premise that, of what he says, that science fiction is, quote, the factual reporting of fictions. Um, and he says, I want to begin by postulating a spectrum or spread of literary subject matter which extends from the ideal extreme of exact recreation of an author's empirical environment to exclusive interest in some strange newness or novum. This might be, this is back to me again. So this novum might be time travel, faster than light space travel, you know, laser technology, whatever, whatever you want. Sometimes there can be many, but it's usually connected to one main thing. One strange newness that changes some essential thing, that changes one element of our reality as experienced by the author so that the author can then explore the new idea. Suvin continues, from the 18th to the 20th centuries, the literary mainstream of our civilization has been nearer to the, the first of these two extremes. However, at the beginnings of her literature, the concern with the domestication of the amazing is very strong. Early tale tellers relate amazing voyages into the next valley where they found dog-headed people and good rock salt which could be stolen or at worst bartered for. Their stories are a syncretic travelogue and imaginary voyage, daydream and intelligence report. This implies a curiosity about the unknown beyond the next mountain range, whether that's the sea, an ocean, or a solar system, where the thrill of knowledge is joined with the thrill of adventure. Um, and central to this concept is something called cognitive estrangement. Um, now, let's just think of both of these two, two words separately. Um, we'll start with estrangement. And what uh, Servan is doing here is building on um, some the writing of Bertolt Brecht, where he has this concept, uh, which is this German word, called the Verfremdem effect, uh, which means alienation, estrangement, distancing, th things of this nature, which is describing familiar things as though they are unfamiliar. It's the process by which we can watch something on screen or on stage and not wholly identify with the characters. You know, we can see a murder on a stage, and rather than being horrified by it consciously, we can look at it dispassionately from the distance and intellectualize it. So we intellectualize all of what's going on, and we try to learn from these things instead of wholly identifying with them. So rather than see a murder, something with which you're at least theoretically familiar, we see a murder as an intellectual construct acted out. And dramatic tension comes from the interplay of our conscious rejection of what we see on stage, we know it is not a murder, the actor is fine, and our subconscious reaction to what we see on stage, which is it looks like a murder. So how, how we intellectually process these things that are happening, but they're happening estranged from our everyday experience. And Darko Suvin is taking this concept, and Darko Suvin is very interesting, he is a a Marxist scholar of literature, um, of course he was from Yugoslavia, and applies it sort of more generally. So here, here he says, science fiction takes off from a fiction or quote literary hypothesis and develops it with a totalizing scientific rigor. It is a literary genre whose necessary and sufficient conditions are the presence and interaction of estrangement and cognition, and whose formal main device is an imaginative framework alternative to the author's empirical environment. Thus, the distancing effect of science fiction is not literary, but empirical. We accept a new set of facts, not about the procedures of dramatic action, this person does that and so forth, but a new set of facts about the world. Thus, it is a type of storytelling where we are estranged from the science, what can be known and controlled. Um, and so let's, let's go, go back and unpack that for a second. So the distancing effect 
is not, I would say, probably not just literary, because the distancing effect is also literary. It is something you read with interest rather than, say, radical identification. Um, but the what's, what's taking the empirical distancing effect is, say, the presence of replicator technology and what that means for the people in Star Trek. Uh, so the t he continues, the term cognition used here this term implies not only a reflecting of, but also on reality. It implies a creative approach toward a creative approach tending toward a dynamic transformation rather than toward a static mirroring of the author's environment. So in that way, science fiction is this incredibly creative process where you mirror your environment, you change one thing, and then you allow the differences to flow forward. It's sort of a little bit like an imaginative exper experiment, right? You change one or more things and you game out the consequences versus your own world. So rather than saying, okay, yes, we have a, a story in which a conquering hero slays the king because he controls a dragon or whatever, say, okay, we have a story in which you know, a massive worker uprising uh, is enabled not because everyone has dragons, but because, I don't know, um, uh, the Soviet Union developed a plasma rifle or whatever, right? It's this. It's just we're going to change one thing and then see how it goes. So as Suvin says, the world of a work of science fiction is not a priori intentionally oriented towards its protagonists, either positively or negatively. The protagonists may succeed or fail in their objectives, but nothing uh, in the basic contract with the reader and the physical laws of their world guarantees either. Science fiction thus shares with the dominant literature of our civilization a mature approach analogous to that of modern science and philosophy, as well as the omnitemporal horizons of such an approach. So we are not merely telling a story, but we have to think through the consequences of what we are changing, because ultimately it is a very productive form of fiction because you're not inventing, because what you're inventing must inherently have some contact with reality. It must be rooted somehow in your world and yet different from it. Um, and that's where, even like if we think about, you know, Warhammer 40,000, which is like a, uh, a, a very, it's how, hear about this, how Warhammer 40,000 is slightly more science fiction than Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars it has precisely zero connection to any kind of uh, real world as it is currently experienced. You can say, most people would say it's a space opera, which is kind of like a fantasy story that happens to have lasers and spaceships and stuff um because it is there is no takeoff there is no um there is no there is there is magic it's not we're we're not developing something now i'm aware that's also a very narrow definition of science fiction some of some may disagree with it i mean this is kind of like me like in this other in the philosophy of science episode i was like well here are the main theorists of the philosophy of science this guy is like the main theorist of science fiction or one of the big ones so it's kind of like that there this is me citing a theory from like the you know 70s so it's it's just happens to be the one that i know and it's one that i like um was warhammer 40000 uh attempts to even though it makes this insane world of of space marines fighting demons or whatever um it attempts to connect that to a world that is sort of so far in the future that there might be little allusions to something we might recognize today, but it is a you know some tiny artifact that just sort of reminds the reader that this is still set in our world, sort of. Um, it's um it's the same thing with Doom, right? That's another uh, 
that's another science fiction story with where a space marine fights demons. Um, but the portal to hell, as it's discussed, is like it it ra- it brings hell into the physical world and says actually teleportation, um, which is the the technol the big the big technology change in Doom is that it's like okay we have teleportation, it's that teleportation opens a portal to hell, um, so that's the if you like the novum that's the thing that's changed. So science fictional devices are also used with increasing frequency in books of left wing theory as well. You know, what's Aaron Bastani's fully automated luxury communism, but a work of theoretical fiction without a named protagonist? He posits a number of what, and that's, that's no takeoff, by the way, on, on Falk. Like, I, I may not fully agree with all of it, but calling it science fiction is no insult in this context, because it's positing a number of what Suvin would have called Nova, these technologies that, say, do some big thing, that enact the big change, that give you the cognitive estrangement. And in Bastani's case, he introduces a number of Nova that do away with scarcity and then games out what those Nova would do versus our world, which serves as the control for the thought experiment. So it's like, yes, we don't have replicator technology now, but Bastani is talking about, well, if we were to have it, here's how things would be different. And then the idea is that these these fictions, these stories, uh, well, when they're used sort of in a left-wing political sense anyway, these fictions are meant to be motivating because... The thing about the one of the things that's unique to left wing not unique to left wing politics, but that is um, a big feature of left wing politics is modernism. It's the creation of something new and the moving forward out of the previously known, which requires in some form some kind of storytelling. It requires you to tell to, to tell the story of what the world will look like should we make the following changes, and you're not able to simply do history and say, well. It will look like this because it's looked like this before because good modernist leftist politics is about doing a new thing. So Peter Frace's excellent book, For Futures Life After Capitalism, performs a similar function, though much more explicitly acknowledged. In his exploration of the four futures, um, exterminism, uh, exterminism, which is where we still have hierarchy, we still have scarcity, I'll explain those in a sec, communism, where we have neither hierarchy nor scarcity, Socialism, where we have scarcity but no hierarchy, and then rentism, where we have no scarcity but still hierarchy. Um, Frase looks at the ways in which other uh, how other authors have different nova combined with different sets of social relationships, producing these hierarchies and scarcities. So the, the scarcity is how many goods are there, you know, how how much um, socially necessary labor time needs to go on, and hierarchy, who decides how those goods are produced, how much, who benefits, and so on. So for the utopia, communism, neither hierarchy nor scarcity, uh, he talks a lot about Star Trek, which it's with its post-scarcity replicator economy, and then works backwards to what kinds of social conditions might need to be in place in order to bring it out. It's less of a how-to manual and more of a thought experiment, but you can't do that thought experiment unless you have sort of speculative fiction. So let's get a little more of the theory about a way out of the way, and let's talk about the book. The last bit of theory I want to discuss is what makes hard sci-fi versus soft sci-fi. There's no hard and fast rule, but we can think about it as one where the nova are more grounded in reality. That is, the working shown to get to the alternative world is more rigorous. So where a work of soft science fiction might have anthropomorphic aliens, humans with awakened psychic powers, perhaps these psychic powers are explained by a cybernetic implant or cosmic radiation. Both of these things are real, noble, and measurable. I mean, cybernetic implants and cosmic rays do exist. They just don't have the effect of waking latent psychic powers yet. Um, 
hard science fiction will have citations. You know, maybe the teleportation technology isn't just some MacGuffin box, but is actually based on theories of like quantum entanglement. And therefore, you know, what it can do is more limited. It's the technology is less governed by the logic of the story. Um, and and, and it's said it's the other way around. So in Blindsight, for example, one of the main ways that the um, spaceship that's doing first contact uh, sort of uh, powers itself is by uh, creating, is by receiving antimatter that's teleported to it from the sun. Uh, but you can't just teleport things. You can only teleport information. Um, and this is actually pretty close to something science, scientists have done, where they can make the spin of a proton in New Zealand mimic the spin of a proton in uh, Switzerland without actually having the two of them communicate at all. It's called quantum teleportation. So therefore, in the book, um, what, how the ship is fueled is that it is constantly being sent the quantum specs to create antimatter, which it then does by like, um, you know, performing some operation on atoms. It just sifts from uh, space as it flies through. So hard science fiction is so interesting to me because it tries to tell the best stories with a minimum of estrangement. It sort of blurs the border between science and fiction. So the key theme of blindsight is consciousness. And the book is called Blindsight after a real condition where you lose your ability to perceive vision consciously, but you still react normally to what would otherwise be visual stimuli. If you're struck down with blindsight, you will believe you are blind, but if, you're thrown, if someone throws a ball at you, you will catch it reflexively without thinking about it. Your vision goes directly to work for your unconscious mind. So with that in mind, with the meaning of the title in mind, let's go. So the setting... Uh, Blindsight is, uh, like I said, a first contact story, and it's set primarily on a spaceship called Theseus. Um, as a narrator, experiences first contact, but also reminisces about his last days on Earth itself. And it's also a deeply cynical version of this vision, where humanity has slowly been making itself obsolete. If there's one passage that sums up Blindsight, it is this one. Theseus carried no regular crew, no navigators or engineers, no one to swab the decks, no meat wasted on tasks that machinery orders of mag smaller could perform orders of mag better. Let superfluous deckhands weigh down other ships if the non-ascendant hordes needed to attach some pretense of usefulness to their lives. Let them infest vessels driven only by commercial priorities. The only reason we were here was because nobody had yet optimized software for first contact. Bound past the edge of the solar system, already freighted with the fate of the world, Theseus wasted no mass on self-esteem. So here we were, rehydrated and squeaky clean, Isaac Spinzel to study the aliens, the gang of four, or Susan James and her secondary personae carved out of her brain to talk to them, Major Amanda Bates was here to fight if necessary, and Jukka Sarasti to command us all to move us like chess pieces on some multidimensional game board that only vampires like him could see. Um... Two things. Number one, uh, Blindsight breaks one of the cardinal rules of fiction in the most delightful possible way, which is if your story is, is going to have aliens in it, they can't land on Earth and get bitten by a vampire. In this case, they only don't land on Earth because there are also vampires in this story. I'll explain later. It's actually delightful. Um, and also a this fifth character, the unreliable narrator, Siri Keaton, who is here to report what's going on. His role is that of a synthesist, and what he does is he works as a translator. However, he doesn't translate languages, he translates paradigms. From explaining the discoveries of transhumans who are so hopelessly advanced 
that they couldn't possibly begin to explain what they know to the normal baseline humans who take credit for it and run everything. Uh, but he's an unreliable narrator because he's he is here to report on things. He is translating. He is viewing. So the, his, one of my favorite passages of the book uh, explores his unreliable narrator-ness. They never really talked that way, by the way. They didn't speak normally. If you listen to them, you'd hear gibberish. Uh, these are his crewmates. If you listen to his crewmates, you'd hear gibberish. A half dozen languages, a whole babble of personal idioms, if I spoke in their real voices. Some of the simpler tics even made it through. Sasha's good-natured belligerence, Sarasti's aversion to the past tense, Spinzel lost most of his gender pronouns to an unforeseen glitch during work on his temporal lobe. But it went beyond that. The whole lot of them threw English and Hindi and Hadzane into every second sentence because no real scientist would allow their thoughts to be hamstrung by the conceptual limitations of a single language. Ah, I just, I find that, to be, like I said, this is going to be a little bit of theory, but mostly being like, ah, fucking sweet. Um, the, just, so the, the idea is that the action proceeds here, not a group of ragtag soldiers giving one another pep talks, but rather a group of barely human twitching um, half machines uh, sort of blabbering at one another in about you know, six different languages full of nervous tics because their brains have been carved up and optimized and, um, and, and superheated, essentially. In one of the previous paragraphs, where we talk about the fact that there is no regular crew, that the only reason that the that the the transhumans, the transhumans who are so advanced that they are unable to even conceptually relate to a normal person, um, it has not been automated. Um, you know, where, where, where humans are freed from the realm of necessity so much uh, that what are the remaining human priorities? You know, these remaining things that are necessary, such as further discovery, they become dictated by our tools rather than us. You know, we, we're only there because software isn't there. But who's deciding to send us? You know, as we sort of find out throughout the story, it's like, oh, wait a minute. There wasn't even necessarily humans who decided to send you. It was either vampires or software. Um, that this encapsulates the attitude taken towards humanity in the book. Superfluous, confused, blind, and largely an inconvenience on the logic of society, which has become increasingly one of, of that of matching means to ends. Because Blindside imagines a fictive world where the main novum, or the set of nova, nova, is that we have more or less answered every unanswered question we know we have. That is, in the world of Blindsight, all of our, uh, our known unknowns have become themselves known. Everything has been completely disenchanted. There is nothing left that we don't understand, at least until the aliens show up. Um, in fact, it, ev it even is explicitly a post-scarcity economy. Um, so this is a, a, a reminiscence of Earth. I've been liaising for a team at the Kurzweil Institute, a fractured group of cutting-edge savants convinced they were on the verge of solving the quantum glial paradox. That particular logjam installed AI for decades, and once broken, the expert promised we'd be um, 18 months away from the first personality upload and only two years away from reliable human consciousness emulation in a software environment. It would spell the end of corporeal history and usher in a singularity that had been waiting impatiently for on the wings for nigh on 50 years. Two months after Firefall, uh, the Institute canceled my contract. I was actually surprised it had taken them so long. It had cost us so much, this overnight inversion of global priorities, these breakneck measures making up for lost initiatives. Not even our shiny new post-scarcity economy could withstand such a seismic shift without lurching towards bankruptcy. 
Installations in deep space, long since imagined secure by virtue of their remoteness, were suddenly vulnerable for the same reason. Lagrange habitat had to, habitats had to be refitted for defense against an unknown enemy. Commercial ships in the Martian loops were, cons- uh, were conscripted, weaponized, and reassigned. Some secured the high ground over Mars, while others fell sunward to guard the Icarus away. array. It didn't matter that the Fireflies hadn't fired a shot at any of these targets. We couldn't afford the risk. We were all in it together, of course, desperate to regain some hypothetical under upper hand by any means necessary. Kings and corporations scribbled IOUs in the backs of napkins and promised to sort everything out once the heat was off. In the meantime, the prospect of utopia in two years took a backseat to the shadow of Armageddon reaching back from next Tuesday. The Kurzweil Institute, like everyone else, suddenly had other things to worry about. So, um, Firefall in this story is this thing, this, this, these alien devices that clench around earth burn up in the atmosphere and it's a mystery um we're we're saying oh lord someone has taken our picture and we don't know why there's nothing nothing else it's just a moment fire in the sky um gone and so this is this is the the world where everything is solved and then it's immediately unsolved there's something we don't know there's something we don't understand all of these programs, this end of history that was just sort of slowly working itself out um, is derailed by the arrival of this alien thing. But let's ex- there's one passage I quite enjoy. And again, this is from one of uh, Ceres' reminiscences about a date he's on in, um, on Earth um, with a neuroesthetist. Tell me what it's like, I said smoothly, rewiring people's heads for a living. Chelsea grimaced. The butterfly tattoo on her cheek fluttered nervously at the motion, wings brightening. God, you make it sound like we turn people into zombies or something. They're just tweaks, mainly. Changing taste in music or cuisine, you know, optimizing mate compatibility. It's all completely reversible. There aren't drugs for that, I asked. No, too much developmental variation between brains. Our targeting is really fine scale. But it's not all microsurgery and fried synapses, you know. You'd be surprised how much rewiring can be done non-invasively. You can start all sorts of cascades just by playing certain sounds in the right order or showing images with the right balance of geometry and emotion. I assume these are new techniques, I asked. Not really. Rhythm and music hang their hats in the same principle. We just turned art into science. So regular listeners to the Commie Book Club will know that I'm a big, big fan of the Frankfurt School, especially the book The Dialectic of Enlightenment by Horkheimer and Adorno, which deals with concepts of enlightenment as disenchantment. So just as a brief reminder, so we used to look at thunder as like God going bowling or whatever, but then we begin to understand it as a set of physical processes. And then it, rather than we, us resorting to a like metaphysical explanation for a physical phenomenon, we understand it as a physical phenomenon, and then we're able to harness electricity. So, um, so it, when the thing is unknown to us, when it's a black box, when it's God bowling, it has power over us because we don't know about it. When, as we learn about it, bring it under our control, we have power over it, but it becomes disenchanted. So when thunder is reduced to a set of um, you know, physical processes, then its power as, say, a religious focus is completely gone. You can't have a thunder god if you also have physics. And so the, the world of blindsight proposes that what, there is nothing... There is nothing ineffable in this world. There is nothing that's not understandable. There's nothing that's not reductive. There is your love of music is of a certain type of music is um, 
you know, evolved reward circuitry firing off at the right time and certain neural pathways that have become more used than others, which with a little bit of surgery can be rewired. And as much as we don't like to think that that as somehow somewhat true, you know, just remember, like, you know, there are people, Phineas Gage was a railway worker in the 19th century who got a spike through his head, survived, but then his personality was completely changed because someone made, because there were physical changes made to his brain. That's not saying that, you know, the evolutionary biologists are right or that, you know, you should give up because there's no such thing as free will. I mean, these questions, I think the question of whether or not there's free will is fundamentally not an important one because whether or not there is free will doesn't change uh, what you're going to do or how you're going to act. It's like a completely academic question that, that, that has no bearing on any decision you will ever make. Like it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. But regardless, um, the world of blindsight disenchants all of this. There is nothing ineffable. So this is just, I grabbed this also to explain the process of disenchantment from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which, by the way, if you don't use it, is a phenomenal resource. Uh, I, I use it for these a lot. So the, this encyclopedia goes, in an unfree society whose culture pursues so-called progress no matter what the cost, that which is other, whether human or non-human, gets shoved aside, exploited, or destroyed. The means of destruction may be more sophisticated than the modern West, and the exploitation may be less direct than outright slavery, but blind, fear-driven domination continues, even with greater global consequences. The all-consuming engine driving this process is an ever-expanding capitalist economy fed by scientific research and the latest technologies. So that is to say, by understanding the the scientific basis of something by enlightening ourselves about it we gain power over it and in many ways this gives us power over one another so for example the uh, the the what horkheimer and dorno talk about in the dialectic of enlightenment is that by throwing off the sort of enchanted power of kings as descending from god by sort of showing that well there either there isn't a god or it's not politically relevant if there is because he probably doesn't care who rules what patch of ground um we then remove the that the enchanted thing's power over us, but then we only see we only impose our power over others again, but this time say through rationality. So we used to say um, that white people were the most rational because of our skull shapes or whatever, and so by studying skull shapes, we then enlightened ourselves, but we just remystified something. So we've mystified a bunch of social processes of domination by measuring everybody's skull shapes and then putting a, a slapping a sticker on it that says rational science. Um, and so we are able to, in the, so that's why it's a dialectic of enlightenment. We throw off an untruth and then we just invent another one and it has the same effect, but it's this constant moving struggle. Um, that's just a little bit of Marxism for you. So in the case of blindsight, by understanding the physical basis of emotion, for example, we gain power over it and power over one another. You know, we can, you can understand how to rewire yourself or someone else in order to do something. And this is not a, actually specifically a main theme explored by the book, the disenchantment of emotion in particular, but the total disenchantment of everything is a key theme. So the processes that underline human society keep going even after all the unnecessary humans have just been offloaded. If anything, these processes are improved and optimized. Most humans are either so spliced up with implants and inlays, like the crew, that they're barely understandable as human anymore, or the human baselines just give up and get themselves interred in the catacombs of heaven, which is another construct of this story, which is a persistent neural interactive simulation, kind of like the Matrix, where they live out their days in a dream world. The difference between this and the Matrix is that they know it's VR. It's just they say, you know what, look, Society clearly no longer needs most of us.
why should I bother with the daily grind of finding a partner, waking up, um, eating, drinking, when there's sort of no point. There's like an existential nihilism. So I might as well just have my brain taken out and hooked up to a simulation where I can just have an awesome time doing whatever I want, being the god of my own little, being the god of my own brain, essentially. And what this means is that ultimately a less and less conscience and conscious and sentient earth carries on with hyper-optimized processes because an understanding of thunder before it's disenchanted requires sentience. It requires, a, it requires conceiving of an I and an other, and it requires imagining a relationship of the self to thunder and maybe taking appropriate actions to bring it out, bring it about or ward it off or whatever. That requires sentience. However, a robot with exactly the right instructions could find where thunder is, set up a lightning rod at exactly the right point to then attract thunder. You don't need sentience for that. And so in a sense, as it becomes hyper-optimized, as it becomes more and more correct about whatever it is that it's trying to do, the entire human species is becoming less and less sentient. And again, this should put us in mind of automation, as our own forms of hyper-optimization may make the like realm of necessity smaller. That is, we are shrinking socially necessary labor time by automating stuff, where socially necessary labor time is the amount of work needed to fulfill a given society's needs. We shrink it to a smaller and smaller number of hours, which makes fewer and fewer people necessary. Then our own society gets less and less sentient because it's carrying out repeatable transactional understandable bite-sized processes. And the total disenchantment of everything is kind of scary because the idea, what is the idea of a human as an end in themselves, but a, a sort of enchanted approach to consciousness, one that looks at it not as you know, a set of um, neurological subroutines that have questionable evolutionary value, but rather that looks at consciousness as somehow good in itself, an enchanted black box, a thing that should be powerful. But this is very scary. And I want to talk a little bit about horror because this, this prospect is so scary. You know, the idea that the end, you as an end of yourself, is, end in yourself rather, is just going to be replaced by you as a means. Because what is, and, and in this way, what is Kant's whole project but saying consciousness is good, let's just, let's just say that it's good. You know, I'm, I'm rational, which just means I can reflect on things, which means I'm conscious, I'm sentient. I have a set of neurological subroutines, and those are good for some reason. And they're good in themselves. They don't, there's, no, there's no reason they're good, just they're good. You know, you could, from this perspective, that's basically what Kant is saying. But rather than the eldritch abominations of Lovecraft, Watts puts his horrors front and center scientifically. So here's the opening passage. Imagine you are Siri Keaton. You wake in an agony of resurrection, gasping after a record-shattering bout of sleep apnea spanning 140 days. You can feel your blood so syrupy with dobutamine and, um, and uh, there's a drug name here, uh, luencephalin, forcing its way through arteries shriveled by months on standby. The body inflates in painful increments. Blood vessels dilate. Flesh peels apart from flesh. Ribs crack in your ears with a sudden unaccustomed flexion. Your joints have seized up through disuse. You're a stick man, frozen in some perverse rigor vitae. Suffering in silence, you check the logs for fresh telemetry. You think that can't be right, because if it is, you're in the wrong part of the universe. You're not in the Kuiper belt where you belong. You're high above the elliptic and deep into the oort. 
the realm of long period comets that grace the sun every million years or so, you've gone interstellar, which means you've been undead for 1800 days. That's quite, quite scary because it's you, it is you, a human of undergoing a painful resurrection process. Um, and you're out beyond the solar system completely by yourself as barely knowing what you're there to do. Um, because a an, a ship's artificial intelligence has decided it for you, and then you must have to just react to what has been done to you. Um, and I think that is so terribly interesting. So they also want to, and the reason I'm just bringing up these different images from the book is like I particularly want you to read it. So I'm not summarizing the plot too much. So or or this this is a, this is another kind of horror. So that's the kind of horror of what science does to the body. And here's the other horror, which is the first encounter with the truly alien. So we've gone back to enchantment, and the process of the book is the disenchantment of, of the truly alien, the attempt to understand it. Um, the ship containing, this is the ship containing whatever it is the humans and the spaceship are going out to meet. It's called Rorschach. And suddenly, Rorschach snapped into view. No refractory composites, no profiles or simulation in false color. There it was at last, naked even to human eyes. Imagine a crown of thorns, twisted, dark, and unreflective, grown too thickly tangled to ever rest on any human head. Put it in orbit around a failed star whose own reflected half-light does little more than throw satellites into its silhouette. Occasional bloody highlights glint like dim embers from its twists and crannies. They only emphasize the darkness everywhere else. Imagine an artifact that embodies the very notion of torture, something so wrenched and disfigured that even across uncounted light years and unimaginable differences in biology and outlook, you can't help but feel somehow that the structure itself is in pain. Now make it the size of a city. It flickered as we watched. Lightning arced from recurved spines a thousand meters long. Uh, our, our consensus system showed it, us a strobe-lit hellscape, huge, dark, and twisted. The composites had lied. It was not the least bit beautiful. It's like that passage, I feel, could be... This is where we get to the Lovecraft thing, which I find so interesting. Is this, could, this passage could have been lifted directly from At the Mountains of Madness. This description of something utterly alien, utterly beyond us, completely ununderstandable. And there's not a point to be made here about you know, automation or whatever, but rather that Wasp is doing the same difficult task as Lovecraft in trying to explain something that is completely incomprehensible to the human brain. You know, how do you describe the indescribable? How do you make the alien relatable? You know, it's if understanding something that is ununderstandable is the that is impossible to understand is the last mission of this society that is so deep into the end of history that it is sunk into complacency. But here's what's very interesting, which is that Watts takes his horror, whether it's body horror or eldritch horror, because that's the thing about eldritch horror is we want to talk about gaining power over something by disenchanting it. The thing about an eldritch horror, whether it's a great old one or whether it's... Um, it's the, it's the Rorschach crown of thorns. The eldritch horror is not, it's not disenchantable. It is simply beyond the capacity of any human to understand it like we would understand a process like thunder. And it speaks to a fundamental human anxiety that there are things out there that can't be subject to those same processes because ultimately it means that there is something out there we can't beat, which ultimately means over a long enough time scale we're doomed. Um, but 
this is also humans. So remember in the very early part of this episode where the blurb mentions vampires. So like I said, it's an old earth, uh, old saying in storytelling that you can only have one major conceit. That is, aliens can't land on Earth and find themselves bitten by a vampire. And I love that this book specifically does not imbibe by that convention. But how are vampires written into a science fiction book where we think about science fiction in terms of cognitive estrangement rather than world building? Where we just say, oh yeah, there are vampires here, it's magic. It's like, no, we have to have something that's rooted in reality. Um, and... So how, are, how is the vampire written into this science fiction book, especially as the leader of this mission? So here's an excerpt of Jukka Sarasti, a vampire, giving the longest speech he makes in the book to a crew of his prey that he leads. Brains are survival engines, not truth detectors. If self-deception promotes, promotes fitness, the brain lies, stops noticing irrelevant things. Truth never matters, only fitness. By now, you don't experience the world as it exists at all. You experience a simulation built from assumptions, shortcuts, lies. Your whole species is agnosiac by default. Rorschach does nothing to you that you don't already do to yourselves. Nobody spoke. It was several silent seconds before I realized what had happened. Jukka Sarasti had just given us a pep talk, but he was only trying to keep us functional, lost in space on the edge of our lives, facing down this monstrous enigma that might destroy us at any instant for any reason. Sarasti was trying to calm us down. Good meat. Nice meat. He was trying to keep us from falling apart. There, there. Oh boy, makes your skin crawl. So, and this next passage is from the actual after end of the after the end of the story, where Watts provides a rigorously cited appendix. This is one of my favorite passages um, because it takes a con this concept in fantasy, the unknowable vampire, and then disenchants it entirely. Vampires were accidentally rediscovered when a form of experimental gene therapy went curiously awry, kickstarting long dormant genes in an autistic child and provoking a series of ultimately fatal physical and neurological changes. Homo sapiens vampiris was a short-lived human subspecies which diverged from the ancestral line between 800,000 and 500,000 years before present. More gracile than either Neanderthal or sapiens, gross physical divergence from sapiens including a slight elongation of canines, mandibles, and long bones in the service of an increasingly predatory lifestyle. However, while virtually identical to modern humans in terms of gross physical morphology, Vampiris was radically different from sapiens on the biochemical, neurological, and soft tissue levels. That is, these things that do not fossilize, thereby explaining their absence from the fossil record. Vampiris hearing and vision were superior to that of sapiens. Retinas were quadrochromatic, containing four types of cones and seeing an infrared. Um, vampire gray matter was underconnected compared to human norms due to a relative lack of interstitial white matter. This forced isolated cortical modules to become self-contained and hyper-effective, leading to omni-savantic pattern matching and analytical skills. So what are, what are the, some of the things that Peter Watts just did in that last paragraph is he took things like the, the, deviousness, of, the deviousness and sensory sharpness of vampires, their, their tall, swishy nature, their long front teeth even, and he's explained them using scientific language. Because what does Dracula have if not slight elongation of the canines, you know? So he says, virtually all of these adaptations are cascade effects that, while resulting from a variety of proximate causes, can be ultimately be traced back to a paracentric inversion mutation on the XQ21.3 block of the X chromosome. This resulted in functional changes to genes coding for uh, protocadhedrons, proteins that play a critical role in brain and central nervous system development. Um, and so if you, you can have a vampire that's the result of a curse you know, leaving God's light or whatever, or you can say, okay, you can work backwards from that. You can say, okay, we know we want them to have longer teeth. We know we want them to be predatory on humans. We know we want them to be all of these things. 
what would that actually if we were to make a human that what would be the actual morphological differences um and this is i think one of the one of the most interesting things so significant deleterious effects also resulted from this cascade for example vampires lost the ability to code for protocadhedron y whose genes are found exclusively on the hominid y chromosome unable to synthesize this vital protein themselves vampires had to obtain it from their food human prey thus comprising an essential component of their diet but in a relatively slow breeding a relatively slow breeding one a unique situation since prey usually outpace their predators by at least an order of magnitude normally this dynamic would have been unsustainable Vi vampires would predate humans to extinction and then die off themselves for lack of essential nutrients however extended periods of lungfish like dormancy the so-called undead state and the consequent drastic reduction in vampire energetic needs developed as a means of redressing this imbalance and their deleterious effect was and this is the coolest one the so-called crucifix glitch a cross-wiring of normally distinct receptor arrays in the visual cortex, resulting in grand mal-like feedback seizures whenever the arrays processing vertical and horizontal stimuli fired simultaneously across an arc in the visual field. Since intersecting right angles are virtually non-existent in nature, natural selection did not weed out the glitch until Homo sapiens sapiens developed Euclidean architecture, but by then the trait had become fixed across Homo sapiens vampiris via genetic drift, and the entire subspecies went extinct shortly before the dawn of recorded history. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, this mostly is just me saying cool, saying stuff that I think is pretty sweet, where we are able to reverse engineer vampires as a science fiction concept rather than a fantasy one. And we're able to start from the chromosomal level and work our way up and work our way up and work our way up. And all of a sudden, we, what we have is a theoretical subspecies of human that was uh, around during the hunter-gatherer age. And who's and, and, and has, a, has a relationship to us like predators have to prey you know that uh where they are might like many predators are with with their prey sort of orders of magnitude more intelligent like cats need to be able to trap antelopes like big cats need to be able to trap antelopes cats need to be able to trap mice need to be able to think rings around them um and that also but that also explains um why maybe they might survive in um in storytelling you know because this is this is the these are these are the the things that are sort of fundamental to to humanity why the ghost stories are so um compelling you know so this is this is what i find sort of so fun about science fiction is it gives you these new ways to to see old stories so the role of vampires in blindsight itself is akin to computers because like, like i said at the beginning of this appendix section which i know was long but you know i love this book shut up um they're akin to computers so they're brought back from the dead for extinction uh with br pumps of drugs in their brain that keep them from having seizures whenever they see two intersecting right angles and then they are so con then they are controlled by their former prey in, such in that way they run all our companies plan all our strategies and largely take control of civilization for us and if this leaves you feeling uneasy, that an omnisavantic ancient predator with infinite patience and an inscrutable reasoning process takes control of society for our benefit with a very contingent leash, well, it should. The other thing about vampires, and this is discussed throughout the book, um, is that they do not have to think about anything uh, in order to, say, name you all the primes between one and a trillion. They just know it. Um, they don't have to think about their past. They just experience all of it all at once. Uh, when they see a Necker cube, which is, you know, the the cube drawn in perspective with one side shaded and one side unshaded 
so that it looks like it's it could be facing two different and opposite ways. And when you stare at it, your perspective flips back and forth as to how you're seeing it. In the story, they see both aspects of the Necker Cube at once. They control multiple simultaneous conflicting worldviews. Um, and this is more like a computer than any kind of organic life, really. In fact, vampires have extreme intelligence, largely unburdened by sentience or a sense of I, because they don't need, they have such hyper-connected, um, they have such hyper-functional brains, they don't have to sort out these, um, confl these conflicting multiple realities, they just experience them all at once, sort of without really thinking about them. So the more you become a perfect means-ends processing machine, the less you have need of I. And that leads us to what you might call the main, main, main theme of the book, which is consciousness. So the Chinese Room is a thought experiment uh, by uh, John Searle. So I want you to imagine um, a human sitting in a room, and in the room is a code book. Uh, there is no translation of what the codes mean, only there is a certain symbol, and says when you see this symbol, reply with this symbol. So it it's allows you to communicate without sentience. Um, a symbol is slid under the door, the human looks at the code book, flips through it, and says, okay, this is the symbol. Um, and a sufficiently, a sufficiently complex code book that could be read through sufficiently quickly uh, would allow you to have all kinds of very detailed conversations. Now imagine the symbols are actually Chinese characters, and the person inside the room doesn't speak Chinese, but let's say is extremely fast at reading a code book. Um, this is allowing them to communicate perfectly, but without any kind of comprehension. You would never know that you weren't speaking to a person who speaks Chinese. And maybe they're even giving you not just appropriate, linguistically appropriate answers, but their rule book is then sufficiently complicated or complex to allow for them to give socially appropriate answers, to give answers that look like reflection. It's a thought experiment that's all about whether or not you can tell if you're talking to an AI, or rather that a sufficiently advanced AI would pass any Turing test. Um, and the point is that the human does not speak Chinese, but you'll never be able to tell. The AI is not conscious, but with a sufficiently powerful rulebook, you'll never be able to tell. Um, and what's interesting is here, one of the responses to the Chinese room um, uh, uh, theory is that neither the human in the room, no, the human in the room does not know Chinese, and the rulebook itself is not able to speak Chinese, but taken together, both of them, that is one system, can be said to know Chinese but it's still proceeding according to a set of rules, much like a computer system. If your goal is to speak Chinese and you have a Chinese room with a perfect rule set, you're going to do it much better than even probably a native speaker because we're, we're looking at a theoretically sufficiently advanced rule set. Um, and this goes then into consciousness, which is, okay, well, then what's consciousness good for? What, why do we have it? You know, what's, the, what's it really doing for us evolutionarily if really what we are is just a bunch of Chinese, if, if, if we are anything other than rather just a bunch of Chinese rooms, even though we're not necessarily speaking Chinese, we're speaking, say, English to one another. What are we but biomechanical machines? So this goes back to um, the prose. Uh, this are the, not the prose, the, um, the appendix. So this is another section of the appendix. Beneath the unthreatening superficial question of what consciousness is or where it's located in the brain floats the more functional question of what it's good for. Blindsight plays with the issue at length, and I won't reiterate points already made. Suffice to say that at least under routine conditions, consciousness does little more beyond taking memos from the vastly richer subconscious environment, rubber stamping them, and taking the credit for them itself. In fact, the non-conscious mind usually works so well 
on its own that it actually employs a gatekeeper in the anterior cingulate cortex uh, to do nothing but prevent the conscious self from interfering in daily operations such as the heartbeat or breathing. So this is from the pros. Make a conscious choice. Decide to move your index finger. Too late. The electricity is already halfway down your arm. Your body acted a full half second before your conscious self, quote, chose to, but the self chose to do nothing. Something else set your body in motion and then sent an executive summary, almost an afterthought, to the little homunculus behind your eyes. The little man, the arrogant subroutine that thinks of itself as the person, mistakes correlation for causality. It reads the summary and sees the hand move, and it thinks that one drove the other, but it's actually backward. Evolution has no foresight. Complex machinery develops its own agenda. Brains, che- brains cheat. Feedback loops evolve to promote stable heartbeats and then stumble upon the temptation of rhythm and music. The rush evoked by fractal imagery, the algorithms used for habitat selection, metastasize into art. Thrills that once had to be earned in increments of fitness can now be had from pointless introspection. Aesthetics rise unbidden from a trillion dopamine receptors, and the system moves beyond modeling, beyond modeling the organism. It begins to model the very process of modeling. It consumes ever more computational resources, bogs itself down with endless recursion and irrelevant simulations. Like the parasitic DNA that accretes in every natural genome, it persists, proliferates, and produces nothing but itself. Metaprocesses bloom like cancer and awaken and then call themselves I. Heavy. Now, this is not by any means the only way of looking at consciousness. In fact, if you were the the theory, this is in some ways a version of the theory of cogniz- of cognition that is referred to as um, epiphenomenalism, which is that the conscious mind is basically just a byproduct of, um, of, of more automatic unconscious processes. And that's just one of many different theories of, of consciousness. It's just one that, the one that um, Watts is playing with here. Um, but here's an example from the fiction discussing uh, what alien life actually is like. Uh, you can't find any genes in them. Maybe they're just biomechanical machines. But that's what life is, Keaton. That's what you are. Another hit of nicotine, another storm of numbers, another sample. Life isn't either or, it's a matter of degree. But what I'm asking is, I asked, are they natural? Could they be constructs? Is a termite mound a construct? Beaver dam? Spaceship? Of course. Were they built by naturally evolved organisms acting naturally? They were. So tell me how anything in the whole deep multiverse can ever be anything but natural. I tried to keep the answer irritation out of my voice. You know what I mean. It's a meaningless question, he responded. Get your head out of the 20th century. So I invite everyone here to get their heads out of the 20th century and read Blindsight. It's so good. It's so, so good. It's my favorite book ever, and I will be linking it in the description. But it only remains for me to say thank you for listening to Comic Book Club in its new home. Uh, thank you. I, please do let me know what you think. Let me know if you read the book. I'm very interested to know if you read the book. I invite you to message me if you read the book. Um, and also to come to our uh, podcasts on the 8th of August uh, and Birmingham Transform. It's going to be a great, great, um, great time. Lots of different people are going to be up there. Do get tickets. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be there, I think, performing from 8. Uh, and then if you're in Edinburgh, Scotland or the north of England, um, come see us at, Ed- at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Very exciting. August 10th. Ticket links in the description. You know what to do. Um, and then of course, come see us at the world transformed in Brighton in, um, September. As you know, of course, there are tickets for that as well. So 
without further ado, thank you. Later. Thank you.